As in other industrial sectors, the past 30 years have seen substantial consolidation among suppliers. Indeed, the last burst of entrepreneurial spirit seemed to have left the market when in the late 1990s dot-com bubble burst. Today, of the top 25 suppliers to the U.S. market that control identified back in 1990, full two-thirds of that old guard no longer exist as independent entities, with much of the global market presence now accruing to a relative handful of primary platform providers. But as process automation center of gravity has continued to shift from hardware to software, along with a growing focus on the promise of digital transformation and smart device connectivity these past half dozen or so years, a new generation of digital ventures and startups have emerged to serve the industry's automation needs. Bottom line, things are hopping once again on the mergers and acquisitions front, and software company acquisitions make up an increasingly large percentage of M&A activity across the industrial landscape. Hello, my name is Keith Larson, editor of Control Magazine and ControlGlobal.com, and welcome to this episode of our Control Amplified podcast. Joining me to help explore today's process automation M&A landscape is the uniquely qualified Gene Bazemore, Managing Director in the Dallas office of Founders Advisors. Welcome, Gene, and thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Uh, thank you, Keith. Thank you for having me today. You bet. As I said in your introduction, you're uniquely qualified to lead this discussion in part because you, you're a chemical engineer undergrad, as I recall, and you started your careers as a process controls engineer, so very, very close to home. But by way of introduction, perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about uh, what you do today with Founders Advisor and just how you came to be the, a middle market deal maker in the industrial technology space. Yeah, that's right, Keith. Uh, I um, I certainly wore a hard hat and boots at one point in time and have worked in, uh, in all kinds of plants around the world. So I've been fortunate to do that early in my career and I made a shift into investment banking uh, many, many years ago and have been uh, very blessed and fortunate to have done so. Uh, in regards to where I am today, Founders Advisors, um, you know, just a little bit about you know, our current firm is that we're, we're a Southern-based uh, investment bank. Uh, we specialize in advising founder-owned and founder-built small, medium-sized companies. And we're, we're really advise companies in a variety of areas in, in their really long-term relationships from our perspective. And in mainly, uh, though, in M&A and capital, capital raising transactions. So those kind of you know, pivotal moments in a company's history when they may be exiting, maybe they're growing and they want to acquire a company or you know, maybe they need to raise funding for for growth and for other ventures. And we're very focused on industry verticals. That's important to us. Mm-hmm. We look at uh, industry experience and expertise as being super important. And uh, as part of that, industrial technology is one of our verticals. And I, I lead industrial technology practice for founders. As you mentioned, uh, I started my career in process controls, and ever since coming into investment banking in the early 2000s, I focused on industrial technologies. And I was—I've had kind of a, the fortune in, in banking to see, you know, early in my career at UBS, uh, large industrial conglomerates and be part of those teams that they, they covered those large industrials. You know, and then at Hulahan Loki, I was on those teams in the middle market and focused on private equity, uh, private equity transactions and uh, uh, middle-sized deals. You know, middle market being half a billion to a billion, billion and a half. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, I'm doing really something I love very much is at Founders, we're focused on the small, medium-sized founder and companies. And I got to tell you, it's very exciting. You know, all the you know, things happening in industrial tech, mm-hmm. automation control, instrumentation, tests and measurement, having seen that over the last couple of decades and those changes, even as an engineer to today, as an investment banker working with some of those smaller and medium-sized companies. Yeah, this this niche has gotten sexy again all of a sudden, so it's kind of fun. 
Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Oh, what I always like to say is that at some point, today's today's industrial technology company eventually becomes tomorrow's industrial company. So it kind of changes over the years, but you always have those kind of leading edge technologies uh, in industrials. And, uh, you know, I think they, they continue to penetrate and that, that trend continues as we see it. Yeah. yeah, it seems that in the 90s and 2000s, M&A in our space was driven more by Consolidation, really, suppliers really seeking greater profitability through breadth of portfolio, increased scale, global reach, than really by innovation. Do you have the same recollection of that period uh, over the last couple of decades? Absolutely, Keith. I think for a portion of the 90s, uh, I was working in those uh, kind of in those facilities, you know, implementing systems and components that kind of eventually were consolidating to larger firms. So it even had a personal touch for me as I kind of saw some of the consolidation. Some great examples, you know, I think in the 90s, you had CB's acquisition of Foxborough, what a, a great longstanding automation brand. Uh, Rockwell expanded into motion with Reliance Electric in 94. Emerson Enhancer, m and HMI capabilities within Aleutian in 1996. Um, I, I said, you know, some great equity, you know, ABB really established themselves mm-hmm. in pulp and paper with the automation brand Elsick Bailey in 99. And then, uh, you know, a system that one reason I remember this transaction is that I, it's a system I implemented in Mobile, Alabama, more products, a uh, great brand that built in the nineties and, and Siemens eventually acquired them in 2000. So, yeah. so I've seen that, but I would say, however, yeah, we do see new technology and trends emerge. It's kind of my former point where you know, what is what is today's technology kind of becomes more accepted and adopted uh, over time, and and I think as we see new technologies and trends emerge today with you know great entrepreneurs and you know, they take great leaps in the technology and, and innovation with the technologies that develop. You know, we see, for example, another example of this is we came out of the 90s and and kind of in the early 2000s we saw the proliferation of sensors. Uh, you saw what we now call edge devices in the early 2000s, and this really talks into you know, the development of um, you know, the, the development and explosion of data in the early 2000s, kind of the, which was foundational to what we see today. And I, I think there are other innovations too. For example, a company like Universal Robots was founded in 2005. A lot of people kind of don't realize how recent that was. And they were just founded in 2005, and they've exploded the entire collaborative robot sector and the, the use of robots you know, across uh, many industries. And so, you know, of course, consolidation does continue, not at the pace it was in the 90s. You know, we saw, for example, you know, the $5.6 billion transaction in uh, 2014 where Schneider Electric combined you know, their, their Modicon brand with Invensys. And so there are some larger transactions that have happened. But as you noted, it was a it was a, a a very large swell of consolidation in the '90s. I think different kind of M and A focus in in 2000 to 2010, and and I think a lot of you know, the topic of today, you know, what's happened over the last decade. Yeah, it certainly seemed like in the last five years or so ago, we we launched our smart industry brand, really focusing around digital transformation. But it just seems like a whole new generation of digitally oriented startups focusing on the industrial space really started to proliferate. I can't tell you how many unheard of companies that I got pitched at <laughs> for some <laughs> startup that I'd never heard of before, much more so Absolutely. 25 years before that. And uh, I was looking at a recent um, recent article from uh, Bloomberg analysis that th- there have been 38 industrial software acquisitions completed just this year so far. 
I mean, which puts us on track to exceed the record number of transactions set back in 1998. So that uh, gives you a sense of, of uh, the the time that's that's expired since the uh, the dot com bust back then. Um, what do you think has changed to really pre precipitate this shift and this this new kind of new blood coming into the market the last few years? I know it is amazing, isn't it? I, I, it's it's kind of like uh, the uh, the revenge of the startup in the automation world. It's like <laughs> like uh, so suddenly we have you know I think I think really I, I I see three trends that have kind of driven this, and it's really over that you know that previous decade. It's some of the foundation has been set up, yeah. and you know there's three trends that I see that that kind of emerge to to drive what's happening in the last five years, as you said, is, is these entrepreneurs in the early, you know, 2010, 12, 13, 14, 15, you know, the early years began to, you know, leverage some of the greater computing power that, you know, in the cloud and in edge devices, right, that were developed in the early 2000s. And then the greater proliferation of wireless, we can't, you know, you, you can't have this discussion without wireless technologies, right? And the internet and the, the ability to access data anywhere. And, and that's been a, a huge you know, factor and trend that, that, that we've seen has impacted the ability of entrepreneurs to develop you know, very you know, clever innovations and clever technologies around these capabilities. And finally, something very recent is the advancement of machine learning techniques and the adoption of, of AI and more sophisticated ability to train models. Automated machine learning is a very recent you know, innovation and the ability for models to train themselves. Uh, so I think most of uh, most of those are listening to this podcast, and you know, many in the in the controls world know what it is to train a PID algorithm and models and, and least squared models and these kind of techniques, and it's very manual. Uh, what has happened recently is the development of coding and the development of software and the the more advanced data science capabilities that are out there. You have the potential of having, you know, a model that is able to train itself, that's able to calibrate itself, self-calibration, auto-calibration is a real thing now. We always dreamed of it, but it's really happening. And I think that's another exciting trend that, you know, factors into the emerging startups and uh, new new technologies, new entrepreneurs that are developing uh, these technologies for, for Industry 4.0 and for, you know, industrial internet of things application. Yeah. And I think that another that brings to mind just the whole kind of um, decoupling of, of hardware and software in the, in the systems side of things. Um, and I think that opens the, the doorway to, you know, more software to be from multiple players. Because uh, in the past, you know, your DCS was a pretty monolithic thing from one vendor. Um, and, uh, you know, it was all pretty locked down. So there's no way to, to bring uh, other technologies in, which of course was also a problem when you wanted to <laughs> wanted to migrate to a new version. But that decoupling through use of um, virtualization and container technologies to decouple the mm -hmm. software side from the hardware and and to move independently on those two platforms, I think has really opened up the landscape as well. I, I think that's absolutely a key trend. I, I'd say key, a term we use kind of in, in, in our group and with clients is, you know, kind of the democratization of data analysis. So the, the software gives access and the ability to get access to the data is, is super important. And, you know, now we've got, uh, you know, the ability for your average entrepreneur to get access to that industrial data and to be able to do really exciting things with it and uh, through the software, like you said. So it's much more software focused. It's much more analysis focused. Don't want to ignore the data science aspect of this. 
and the ability to make more intelligent insights. I think that's that's very important. Uh, Rockwell has been, uh, you know, kind of a leader in some of these areas. I think very early on, they identified the MES layer, kind of the execution system layer. Mm-hmm. It was important to begin to invest in more software companies uh, that were part of that layer. And now, you know, they, they actually partnered with PTC in 2018 with a recognition of the importance of the data science mm-hmm. and the importance of the application of those algorithms and the application of software that will make actionable insights available to the operators and engineers you know, within the facility more broadly. And I do think that, uh, just to your point, the software is much more of a focus. And I tell people all the time that, uh, you know, my in industrial technologies and automation control, um, you know, they say, well, are you a technology banker now? I say, no, I, th- I think it's more that, you know, we're still industrial technology, but a greater portion of my time is spent, you know, understanding software and with software. It's just a greater content of, of everyday life, frankly, for all of us. And that's no different in the industrial community. That's what Industry 4.0 is about, that penetration of software kind of into the industrial landscape. Yeah, and I think uh, you, you mentioned Rockwell, and they obviously did just uh, acquired uh, MES company Plex, which is all cloud-based uh, stuff. So moving not only to software on-premise, but really starting to build out those um, kind of software-as-a-service models so that you can spin up MES applications very quickly across multiple sites because it's cloud-based and you're not you know, doing something something on-site uh, on a particular. That's right. So really allowing companies to take advantage of these capabilities much more quickly um, than they might have been in the past by, by leveraging the cloud. So when it comes to, to valuation, you have obviously been involved with a, a few uh, acquisitions here recently. What sorts of multiples are these new startups fetching and how do these compare with a more traditional hardware-oriented instrumentation and control entity in terms of, of, of those kind of multiples that you would see? How do, how do you gauge that and how do you measure, measure those, uh, the value of those startups? No, that's a that's a very good question, and and you highlighted it a moment ago when you talked about some of the recurring revenue streams that the uh, automation players are tapping into. And this is no different than you know the software as a service model that's employed really uh, in all industries and in all industry verticals and technology of Silicon Valley and and the technology players have understood this for a long time. But today, industrial customers and automation suppliers are really looking at these. These assets and digitization is, is an ongoing trend, and it's something that they're very much interested in. And there has been a change at the board level from a valuation perspective. You know, 10, 15 years ago, you talked about a, an enterprise revenue, enterprise value to revenue multiple, a multiple of revenue on a business. And you'd be tossed out of the room. <laughs> you would, you'd be tossed out of the room. It was always a multiple of cash flow. It was multiple of EBITDA. You even see some legacy of that today with Wall, some Wall Street analysts that talk about EBITDA multiples. When pragmatically, that's not what, what's happening at the boardroom. At the boardroom, they're talking about you know, multiples of recurring revenue. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason is that these platforms are so high growth, you really have to talk about it that way because there's a lot of buried investments in these businesses that you know, the, the cash flow today is not really indicative of where it would be you know, five, 10 years from now. They do expect to be highly profitable you know, down the path. But as you, as you think about it, it's that, it's that Jeff Bezos, Amazon claim you know, from two decades ago where he says, tells Wall Street, don't pay attention to my bottom line. You know, that's creeped into boardrooms and industrial front. And it's true. Uh, you look at 
you know, Rockwell's acquisition of Plex, Plex Systems, for example. Um, if you look at an EBITDA basis, it doesn't make any sense. It's you know, 50, 60 times EBITDA. That's, that's not how they're thinking about it. They're really looking at a, a, a multiple of revenue there. And it's, they acquired the business for 15 times recurring revenue. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the the business itself has around 150 million in annual recurring revenue, and that's that's market today. You know, 10 to 15 times for for a larger, more mature business, uh, more mature relatively, rather than a small startup. You know, you look at these businesses in a 10 to 15 times enterprise value to revenue multiple is is fairly common. And you look at other transactions as well, like for example, uh, Ford have bought Service Channel. Right. Now, Fortive is the old DNR spin out, uh, very much an industrial technology player. They have some aspects of automation in, in some of the industrial markets we talk to and look at. But Service Channel is very much a software service platform for developing, for tracking you know, service technicians. And it, it operates on around you know, 125 million ARR in a recurring revenue. And uh, they bought that for 10 times. Emerson bought open systems for 10 times. Again, I don't want to go through every example, but uh, you know that this is kind of the, the way we think about multiples for some of these software, uh, software as a service companies uh, in today's environment. How does that compare to uh, maybe a, a valve maker or something a little more mundane <laughs> than, a, than a, <laughs> you're looking at uh, somebody who's just a consolidation where it's, company might, might be looking to, um, you know, expand their portfolio from a hardware perspective. How does that compare to what you're seeing with these uh, software companies? Yeah, I don't, I don't want to be unfair to those players as well. No, a lot I, of innovative. No, but I'm just, <laughs> some perspective, you don't need to name any names. Yeah, I think you know, as you look at, and it's not just you know the valve maker, it's the sensor maker, the instrument maker. Or the, yeah, they're making some some really see, super important products. They may have great brands, they may have great channels that could have proprietary edge and something they developed around their their instrument. You know, it may have may have be an edge device that has more capability than you know the previous previous generation. Um, and from that standpoint, you do see some strong you dial multiples. You see north of ten times frequently. For a great sensor company, you might see you know, 12 to 15 times EBITDA. I think for something that is a little bit more mature, mature you know, in the industrial technology area, maybe has some proprietary elements, it tends to be the 8 to 10 times range. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of a more mature you know, valve company, for example. But I think as we think about the, the multiples for companies that are a little bit more uh, in mature markets, or you are going to look at a cash flow multiple, and, and companies that are that are in the higher growth instrumentation sensor space are going to command higher EBITDA multiples than others. That makes sense. Makes sense. Back to the um, the innovation side, I guess. So, what are um, some of the primary factors that are that drive established players to acquire innovative new technologies as opposed to investing in developing more homegrown capabilities. Could you talk a little bit about that, that dynamic? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a fascinating trend because not only do we see industrial customers and, uh, you know, the automation suppliers, the suppliers of these technologies investing, you normally in a marketplace or a mature marketplace, you'd see just the suppliers, the ones, you know, some consolidation among suppliers, for example, of this capability, but you're seeing, you know, consumers, invest in those types of digital assets. And so from our perspective, it's moving so rapidly. You're seeing many of the large industrials more broadly, they have a fear of being left behind. 
mm-hmm. a, com- a competitor adopting an innovative digital technology that gives them that edge in the marketplace, in operations, you know, in the supply chain, with customers, many of the aspects of running their business. You know, and it's the buyer build decision as well. The technologies really are advancing so quickly, and entrepreneurs are developing those so quickly. You know, do, you, do you buy this or do you invest in yourself? And that ties into the acquire concept, which is another trend we see, where the talent to build is a constraint on many of the large industrials. That talent tends to go towards the startups. And we've seen that over the last five years. We've seen a lot of talent. You know, out of the great engineering programs, the great computer science programs, the great data science programs around the country has been, you know, flocking to the startups, flocking to new ventures. They want to be entrepreneurial. You know, so a lot of the great development and a lot of the great talent is, is found in those companies. So we do see that the talent at a company is a big factor for, you know, an industrial or an automation company that, that wants to buy these assets. So that's very important uh, as, as it relates to the M&A decision at the board level. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Things are booming right now, but are there potential technical or marketplace stumbling blocks that could limit growth and contribution of some of these new ventures to our industry overall? Yeah, I, I we continue to see... Can you just see a little nervousness of adoption? It's a little bit of the Wild West among the various technologies, and a lot of the smaller players are out there delivering a lot of innovation. There's a ton of innovation that's ongoing. And so you see a lot of the big corporates that are testing out the technology. They're very open to doing a proof of concept or doing a pilot, but we're seeing some delay and kind of overall broader adoption as it relates to some of the technologies. And that's still that's still a factor, you know, as it relates to and kind of a, a headwind for for the industry. I think when we start to see a shakeout of some of the winners and losers a little bit down the path, you, you'll start to see kind of adoption pick up. It'll follow that you know traditional S curve trend that, that we all have seen in the past. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, edge computing, you know, versus you know edge computing on prem, you know, uh, versus you know, edge computing. Uh, on-prem versus cloud, uh, you know, kind of where do you where do you put the data? Where do you send the data? You know, that input and output beyond the fence yeah. is a consideration, especially with the, the cybersecurity issues that are kind of front headlines every day. Yeah. You know, and you've seen, you know, you've seen the list and the roster of companies that have been impacted by you know, cybersecurity threats and uh, shutdowns. I think uh, probably that that's that's been a, a very large headwind most recently uh, for for companies because you know, a lot of the computing power is in the cloud. You need to send some of this data off premises in order to to have some of the better better algorithms, better results, uh, you know, more data, you know, data analysis and analytics to to capture you know, more actual insights. So it 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 it's that uh, that that IT hesitation to to send data kind of outside the fence is, is another headwind that we see. Yeah, it's always kind of a push-pull thing where I really want the benefits that this, these new technologies can bring, but I don't want to open myself up to, <laughs> to, uh, to uh, you know, in order to, to, to take advantage of some of these new technologies, you've got to be able to extend your architecture and open it up to uh, things that you may not want to be near. So it's got to be done very carefully. So, so it is a, That's right. A, 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 Absolutely. Think twice about it that way. Any predictions, let's say, you know, for five years down the road, could we be headed for a bursting of an industrial IoT bubble uh, like the old dot-com bust uh, a few few years back? <laughs> ah, predictions. And so yeah. I, uh, 
I, let me, and you're recording too, so yeah. let me be very, very careful. You know, I, I think I'll go back to kind of how I opened up is that I think we are we're subject to cycles. I think you're going to continue to see some of these, you know, the ability of computing at the edge uh, will continue to get better and better. You know, the, the processing power that we see, you, you, you saw, you know, Honeywell is really in, in investing in quantum computing. I think we're all kind of excited about what that may bring. Now, that's, that's leading edge technology. That's more of a technology than it is an industrial technology at this point. But um, quantum computing, you know, may be another breakthrough that we all see. I think you'll see the more, more democratization of data, but I think you'll see more algorithms expand to handle this data. You will see machine learning, uh, you know, automated machine learning. You'll see that proliferate. Um, that data and analytics will get engineers, I think, will actually be more empowered by the data analytics and the tools that are being offered. You know, we're seeing some really great self-service analytics companies that are being developed that will allow an engineer not to be an expert in Python or MATLAB, but be an expert in the application and the physics and to be able to merge those two with that software and, and create great solutions kind of for their company. Yeah. So I think you'll see more and more of that. And then finally, um, you know, another another kind of important prediction here, I think we're going to see a lot more robotics. I've really, you know, it's behind the scenes still a little bit, but I think you're going to see your average middle market company, your average smaller company that's maybe one facility in a, in a hometown could have a lot more robots. A lot more, a lot more automation. Uh, that's the next trend. You saw, you know, Hitachi bought GR automation recently, and that transaction I think is indicative of uh, what's happening in robotics. Integration of robotics into our everyday life is is going to really, um, really take off. You're going to see that more visible evidence of that. Yeah, and I think that fits with the, the, the process side of the business much more into the um, this discussion around autonomy and and unattended operations and just moving in that direction where it may not be drones and, and, and robots necessarily, but more sophisticated models that can do process control and can and do these things more efficiently and effectively than uh, than human operators and, and allowing human operators to spend their time on higher value adding things other than, you know, very repetitive types of actions. I think that's kind of fits with, uh, what we're seeing on the robots on more of the moving stuff around side, we're seeing the, those more sophisticated models for doing control of chemical processes and other processes that happen inside pipes and aren't technically robots, but uh, it's the same technology being applied, machine learning and all those same, same things. Yeah, definitely. That's right. Absolutely agreed. Well, thanks so much, Gene, for, for taking the time to share your insights with us today. I think we're, we're kind of getting to the, to the end of our allotted time. And for those of you listening, thanks again for tuning in. I'm Keith Larson, and you've been listening to another episode of the Control Amplified Podcast. Our guest today has been Gene Baysmore with uh, Founders Advisors. Thanks for joining us. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe at the iTunes Store or at Google Podcasts. Plus, you can find the full archive of past episodes at controlglobal.com. Thanks again, Gene, one last time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Keith. Really enjoyed it. And signing off till next time, everybody. 